Guys, if you are watching the World Series right now, you might be a little tired because the games are running a little bit late and it is high energy right now. Uh, so here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to make sure that you are with me this morning. I'm going to move this up a little bit. Give me one second. We're in a series right now called What Lies Beneath. And we're talking about things that maybe are a little uncomfortable for some to talk about in church. Maybe you're not used to talking about things like mental health or depression or anxiety or even just social dysfunction or, or, or all the things that we can talk or struggle with as human beings. But somehow we don't feel the safety to talk about in these environments of faith. Talking about things like anxiety, for instance, fear, losing control. Sometimes we shame those conversations, do we not? Or maybe you don't, but you've been in an environment where you just never felt the liberty to talk about it and say, that's me. I'm struggling with that. And so over the last few weeks, and, and this week, and we're still even praying about whether we should keep going on it. Uh, we, I'm already looking at 2019 at unpacking one of these topics over the course of several weeks because it's been so dynamic and there's been so much feedback and response from it. But my question for you is, what is God putting his finger on in your life that you've been afraid to talk about? Maybe that you've been ashamed to bring up. And is there any way for you to truly experience freedom? Or maybe, maybe back it up even just a second. Is there a way for you to grow in your faith through the trial and through the challenge of what it is that you're bearing? What lies beneath? Last week, we, first of all, we have the most amazing volunteers at our church. And I mean that. Can you actually, everyone clap your hands again. Not honoring me right now. How about we honor everybody that's in the back who's setting up these pipe, the pipe and drape, the worship team. I mean, amazing. Amazing volunteers. You guys are unbelievable. And there are, all of this equipment gets set up every single week. And you know what happens with equipment that you set up every single week? It doesn't always work right. And so last week, we weren't able to get the recording of it. And so because there were so many people asking for it, we wanted to make sure that we, we got this conversation recorded so that people could, could begin a conversation of their own. So I'm going to take just a couple minutes, and I'm going to recap last week, and then we're going we're gonna to head into some new territory in the Scripture this morning. Are you guys ready to do that today? You feeling good today? You alive today? Come on, here we go. Let's do this. First of all, we're, we're talking about anxiety. And you need to know that the World Health Organization has 300 million people around the world clinically diagnosed with anxiety. We're not talking about people who feel anxious because they're giving a presentation on Sunday morning, which happens every Saturday night, in case you're wondering. No matter how many times you do it, there's a measure of anxiety. You're always going to have leading worship, doing something in front of people. That's normal. But a clinical diagnosis, meaning they have met with a professional 
And they're struggling with this. Maybe they take medicine for it. Maybe they see a therapist for it. In the United States alone, 40 million people are clinically diagnosed with anxiety. And oftentimes we don't have the the needed conversation about what that looks like, how to bring healing to our hearts and souls, and just what does it look like to be a good friend to someone that's dealing with things that maybe they're afraid to talk about for fear of shame. Interesting to note that that countries that have uh, greater wealth have a higher proportion of people that struggle with anxiety. The correlation with money and wealth in a nation and anxiety go hand in hand. Interesting, is it not? I, I find it interesting. <laughs> My major was economics in college, so forgive me. Sometimes I I can be a numbers nerd in that. I love stats and ratios and trends and patterns. I love understanding how things work, and I find that to be absolutely an incredible uh, statistic, that, that those who have more find themselves struggling more with anxiety. And so when we look at the roots of anxiety worldwide, The four most common denominators are this. Number one, trauma is the the leading cause of, of anxiety around the world, meaning you've experienced something traumatic. Maybe you lost a mom or a dad. Maybe you went through a divorce. Maybe there's strain in your relationship with a child. Maybe you were in a car accident. It scared you. It was life-threatening, and you almost died. And what these things cause and what they leave behind are what we call emotional trauma. And it may not play out in the moment that you experience it. It may come back later, years later even, where you finally are having to deal with something that you experienced way back here. These are facts. This is reality. Okay? The other thing that people experience uh, as it pertains to, to uh, anxiety is, the, is this the fear of the unknown. I mean, you don't know what's coming. You don't know what's going to happen. And because it's beyond your control and you can't control it, well, you feel anxious about it. I mentioned last week that when I was in high school, there will be friends of, 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 that I had in high school who were listening to this podcast and they probably have no idea what I was experiencing, but I pulled out every single one of my eyebrows when I was in high school. <laughs> it was beautiful. And I did it uh, really just as a nervous twitch. I developed a twitch. It's called trichotillomania, where you deal with your anxiety by picking your fingernails or pulling out your eyebrows or pulling out your hair or doing something to deal and cope with your anxiety. But the reality is I, I was just stressed out. I was anxious. And all these classes, the, the pressure of the class load, the girlfriend, the this, there were people to please, and I just was having a difficult time carrying all this weight, and I felt anxious. We understand anxiety as, as parents. What's going to happen with your children? At the end of the day, they are going to have to be the ones to eventually make decisions. And that is frightening to a mother or a father. And it, is, it can be anxiety-producing. Am I doing enough? 
Am I a good enough mom, a good enough father? The, the, the other thing that, that, that comes into play when we talk about fear of the unknown is just even in relationships, is this the one? Is this my spouse? God, is this what you have for me? Oh, and we don't know. And ultimately, it requires a step of faith. And because it's beyond your ability to control and know, it can feel anxiety-inducing. You guys with me? Thirdly, anxiety, when we, this, is, this is of my own invention, and I think it's reality, I think it's true, what we call the pressure of purpose. In that we have so many options right now. It's like Netflix. When you, Amy and I literally did this two nights ago where we put Netflix on and we're like, man, what do you want to watch? I don't know. And we spend 35 minutes looking for something to watch. And I'm like, I, I feel stressed out just trying to find something that I want to watch. There's so many options. And so the pressure of purpose, it's this idea that, that you need to live your best life. Don't make this wrong step. You can do anything you want. Well, the problem is when you're told you can do anything you want, that means you can literally, like, you're looking at every option. And it's overwhelming. The pressure of finding your purpose. And the reality is the purpose and destiny that we see in Scripture is rarely, rarely ever tied to your vocation. It's tied to who God's called you to be, and that's a son and daughter in his kingdom who love him, who worship him, who bring him glory, and invite others to do the same. That's your purpose. And then lastly, sometimes anxiety is just a straight-up mystery, is it not? And sometimes, you, you know, people feel anxious, and if you don't, haven't dealt with clinical anxiety, then you wouldn't know the extreme nature that sometimes people can feel with it. But imagine the anxiety that you have felt over a test or over a relationship and multiply by about a million, and you can't get off the couch. You're paralyzed by it. You're, you're, you, you just feel stuck, frozen. This is a real thing. It's sometimes people have to take medicine for or they have panic attacks over. And they don't have any explanation for why they feel the way that they feel. It's a mystery. So what do we do about this? If you're sitting here, which by the way, every human being here has felt a measure of anxiety, extreme or slight, but anxiety at large is on the rise. This isn't going away right now. And I believe that the scriptures are going to show us this morning a little direction that we can take that will help arm us, if not to fully overcome anxiety in our life, to at least better equip us to walk through it together. Does that make sense? Father, be with us as we're getting into your scriptures this morning. Lord, I know this is something that, that we, we can struggle with, and we don't always know why. But Lord, we know that you bring freedom. Maybe we've, we've prayed a thousand times and we still haven't really experienced it. Maybe we've gone to a therapist, or maybe we just are dealing with, with the anxiety of class loads and class schedules and work and balancing life. Whatever it might be, Lord, we know that you offer peace and so we invite you here this morning.
Fill us with your peace today. And help us to walk this out faithfully. Amen. 2 Kings 12. The life of young King Joash. I can't get into all the history of this young lad that, that we did last week. You can read it if you want to. 2 Kings chapter 11, chapter 12. Long story short, and I'm, I mean a long story short. Joash is a seven-year-old king. And every single one of his family members has been assassinated or killed. Meaning, he literally, by the way, was taken and hidden from his murderous grandmother... He was hidden in the temple as a baby for seven years. His grandmother murdered every brother and sister that he had so that she could claim the throne. And at seven years of age, Jehoiada the priest, surprise, reveals him to the world. And literally at seven years old, guards on every side, you know, they, they troop him up to the throne. They kill his grandmother and they set him on the throne. And a seven-year-old becomes king of Judah. Awesome. You got to love the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament will make you feel really good about your family. Okay? I mean, my man... His family is so jacked up. It is so dis dysfunctional. I mean, I say his family. They're not even really alive anymore. But the, the legacy, the history of his family is so dysfunctional. Now, we don't know what Joash dealt with, but we understand how humans work, and trauma produces anxiety. Joash, whatever, whatever his life was like, whatever the details looked like, Joash would have had to work through some issues. And when you look at kings, and when you look at, at, at the Old Testament, one of the reasons people are so dysfunctional is because they don't ever work through their issues. There's no working through anything. Their dysfunction just plays out. They just keep killing folks. There's more assassination and betrayal and stupid decisions that people repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat, and they never break the cycle. But Joash has something interesting. It's just one line. We're going to begin to unpack it today. It's chapter 12, verse 2. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. In fact, I'll even back it up to verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 40 years. He's seven, and he reigns till he's 47. His mother's name was Zibia. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and all the years, he did all the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Now, we, we laugh about this. I, I had my sister who has been trained by the FBI and Homeland Security who deals with trauma. This is what she does for a living. Children that have experienced trauma of all kinds. Trafficking, abuse, rape, the most horrific things that happen to kids. She's the one who hears it from the child, puts together the case so that they can arrest and put these sickos in prison. She has a boss job that very few would want to do. But she feels that God has called her to do it. And this is her way of advancing God's kingdom. And I love that. It's amazing. And I asked her to read this story from a clinical perspective, not as a Christian. She said, Joash is, the, is a prime case of somebody that I would be working with. 
where they would have had years of therapy and years of counseling apart from just the, the miraculous deliverance and saving grace of Jesus Christ. But, but, but Joash had something that all of us so desperately need. And it's this man by the name of Jehoiada. And the scriptures say that Jehoiada raised Joash in the temple and he instructed him. He taught him. In other words, Jehoiada was a mentor to Joash. He was somebody who was able to model what a normal life looked like. He was able to represent and show a picture to him of what loving God looked like and what it looked like to be faithful and to be whole and to not be a complete train wreck. And we see Joash doing something that none of his predecessors did, and that's that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. How did he break the cycle? I'm going to tell you how. He had someone in his life who poured into him, who discipled him, and who mentored him. And when we talk about overcoming things like mental illness even, where we can, sometimes we get into this idea that once you have something, you can never get free. And actually, that's not true. That isn't true. Now, I'm not sitting here and giving you false promises that if you just do exactly what I say right here, insert, you know, hit enter, apply, and, and, you know, compute as if somehow this is now your freedom moment. No, I'm not saying that. But what I do know from reading the scriptures and from the data that clinical professionals can provide, they both are saying the same thing that one of the greatest epidemics that we are experiencing in our generation is loneliness. And we do not have people that are pouring into us, that we have relationship with, that we can look up to, that we can have a role model for. Not even somebody that, you know, not, not, not the Michael Jordans of the world. That was, the, that was the, the model that everybody wanted to look and be like, you know, be like Mike when I was in, you know, the 90s. That's right, the 90s. I'm not talking about a far-off person that you look up to. I'm talking about somebody that's in the flesh, that you know, that you're talking to, that you're able to be transparent with. You guys with me this morning? Is this, is this making sense? I'm going to take it just one step further because we understand mentorship just about everywhere except the church. We understand businesses get discipleship. Now, they may not always execute it well, but we get it in principle that you bring on somebody that's new to the, to the company, and what, what, do, what do the other you know, employees need to do? Oftentimes, you're, you're, you're literally saddled with someone, and that person is showing you how to do your job. They're showing you what it looks like to submit it. You need to submit it this way. You need to fill out the forms this way, or this is the way to handle a customer like this. And you get trained, and you get developed, in fact, many companies offer weeks of training for the job that you're stepping into. In other words, they're providing a measure of discipleship so that you would be prepared for the task ahead. We get it in sports. Good grief. Sports, I mean, there is a coach for everything. 
You need to look left? We've got a coach for that. You know what? You've got long hair? We've got a coach for you. I mean, we've got a hair coach for you. We've got a coach for every single aspect of your career as an athlete so that you can be the best, so that you can, so that you can run faster, so that you can run your route better, so that you can get the hitch out of your swing and hit more home runs. We, we are going to develop you and coach you and so you get the retired athlete who's been there and done that to show these youngsters how to be in the game. We get it. And yet when we talk about mentorship or discipleship in the church, it's like, wait, what? That sounds weird. Is this a cult? Like, it feels strange to us as if somehow you get baptized or you pray a prayer and suddenly you just have arrived and should suddenly know how to live your life to the fullest. And that's not how the kingdom works. In fact, nowhere on the planet does that principle work anywhere. So what is it that we need? We need mentors. We need people in our life beyond mom and beyond dad. Although some of the greatest mentorship I hope that you'll ever receive is from a godly set of parents. But even outside of your parents, you need other people that you can look up to and have conversations with. Everybody knows there are things you just aren't going to talk to mom and dad about. We know this. We need mentors. There's a, there's a show that I'm watching right now. I finally found something on Netflix. And it's a, it's a documentary. It's like, a, I don't even know what you call it. It's not a pure documentary because there's like acting in it and I don't even know what you call this thing. But it's about, uh, it's about the mob, the making of the mob, which, you know, as a pastor, clearly, you know, th- that would just, be, you know, near and dear to my heart for whatever reason, I don't know. But in case, in case you know, you're into, you know, what you want to build a crime syndicate, I'm your guy. So... Uh, I'm watching this show, I'm four or five seasons in, and there's, you know, the mob boss, one of the greatest mob bosses in American history, his name is Johnny Torrio. Everyone say, Johnny Torrio. You got like an Italian, like Johnny, Johnny Torrio, right? So he builds the first crime syndicate in all of the United States, he grows this thing. It, it is a what 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 historians call the work of a mastermind. I mean, from gambling houses to to peddling this to racketeering to to uh, car traffic. I mean, every piece of crime and illegal activity you could possibly think of, he organized and created a team of people to execute. And then. In a surprising move, he handed it off to his good friend and his young mentor, Al Capone, who built this enterprise, bringing in what we would now know in 2018 as $83 million a month. That's how much money they were bringing in in illegal activity. Do not walk out of here and say, man, I'm changing jobs. That's not the the takeaway. (laughs) Don't do that. Crime pays. No, don't do that. 
If you watch it, you'll see how many people died around these people. I mean, like everybody died. But my point is this. You can Wikipedia it. You can, you can research it online. Al Capone did what he did because he had a friend and mentor teach him how to do it. And that friend, Al Capone, went on to do even, quote unquote, greater things in the world of crime. Are, are you with me here? Everyone gets discipleship. But oftentimes we don't get it in the church. Even criminals get it. But when it comes to faith, we're like, no, I'm good. I'm straight. I got this. Or we think, well, why would I take the time and invest in someone else? I mean, I've got a job and I'm trying to bring in money. Why would I take what God has given me and somehow give it to someone else? Why would we do that? Number one, because it's the right kind and godly thing to do because sometimes what people need to experience freedom, yes, is to pray, yes, to encounter God's presence, but you know what sometimes people need more than anything else is to just have a godly friend walk with them through some stuff, to link arms and be a friend and let their life be an example as to what this life can look like. I'm not going anywhere. Let's just link up. We're going to walk together. There have been times for Amy and I where, where, as parents, we're overwhelmed. It's not the only thing in life that has overwhelmed us. Sometimes marriage can be overwhelming. Dating can be overwhelming. School can be overwhelming. There's only a, a billion things that could be overwhelming to you in the year 2018 right now. But one of the things that Amy and I have learned to do is that when we are feeling that, you know what we do? We call our friends. And yes, I'm using the word mentor and I'm using the word friend oftentimes interchangeably. And you're going to see why in just a moment. But we call friends who've been there, who maybe are a little bit ahead of us, and we say, hey, well, guys, would you pray for us? And by the way, could you give us some advice? Like, how did you do this? I got, a th I got a thing happening with one of my kids, and it's, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of nervous about it, and I'm anxious about it, and I can't sleep about it, and I, I, I'm, I don't know what to do. Would you help me? And you know what I've never gotten? No. I've never gotten a man, no, you're on your own, bro. You are really up a creek. No. I've gotten the exact opposite of, of mentorship and friendship and walking together through a difficult time. Do you know what we need in a world riddled with anxiety? Is we need to discover and rediscover the art of mentors and friendship. We've lost it. We've lost what it looks like to just make friends. Look at this. Look at what Jesus says. Who are, I mean, let's just call it like it is. Jesus is the greatest friend and the greatest mentor you'll ever experience. That's like the churchiest thing I could ever say. I know that. Jesus is your friend. Yes, he is. Just walk with me. In fact, I forgot to mention one of the, the big ideas, and if I, I'll regret it if I don't say it to you. But in the, in the world of discipleship, I, I got cruising, got going, and I, mess, I, I forgot to say it. But understand this truth, that if your friendships can train you to love evil, why can't your friendships train you to love godliness? 
You know how many friends I've had that have pulled me away from loving Jesus? Plenty. I've had plenty of friendships pull me towards brokenness. And if that principle is true, why can't friendships do the exact opposite? Why can't pr- friendships drive you towards wholeness? Why can't friendships drive you towards loving Jesus and having a more full, alive relationship with him? I sure think they can. And when you discover who those people are that are inspiring you, that are challenging you, that are loving you, that are encouraging you, do everything you can to spend as much time with them as you can. Okay. John 15, 15. This is what Jesus says. He says, I no longer call you servants. He's speaking to his, the, the disciples, his followers. I don't call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. Jesus Christ looked at the disciples and he used a word that many of us would not, we wouldn't, we wouldn't describe in our relationship with God. We don't look at it this way. It's authoritarian. It's, it's Zeus sitting on a cloud with a thunderbolt waiting to just throw it down the minute you do something that you shouldn't do. But Jesus looks at those who are with him and he says, you are not my servants. You're not my slaves. You are my friends. This is what friendship looks like together. Yes, am I investing you? Yes, are you following me? Yes, but we have still a friendship. The most popular t-shirt, to counter my, my argument here, I'm going to push back on it. The most popular t-shirt, I think, in 2007 was Jesus is my homeboy. I think it was 2007. Now, Jesus is your friend. And he loves you like a true good friend does. But what I'm not saying is that Jesus is just your bro. And he's just down with whatever. Yeah, you just live however you like, bro. That's cool. No. No, 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 a mentor, a discipler, someone who's invested in you understands what it looks like to elevate truth in someone's life and to call that which is not into existence. You can, we can, there's something better for you than this. Galatians 6, 2 says to carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is what friends do for each other. And when we talk about overcoming anxiety, one of the things, or depression, or any mental illness or disorder or challenge you are experiencing in your life, one of the reasons we stay stuck for so long now is we have no one that's helping us carry our burdens anymore. And I don't, I'm not saying that like a guilt trip on all the other people. What I'm saying is we, we, we've lost the art of having deep, transparent friendships where we know each other, we know each other's struggles, we know the sin in each other's lives, and we help each other break through. And you carry each other's burdens. Your pain, I can't carry it completely for you. But you know what? Your pain hurts my heart. And your difficulty is my difficulty. Your challenge is my challenge. I'm with you, friend. I'm praying with you. And I'm not going anywhere. You know what that does to someone who's struggling with something? Even if they don't get free, 
it allows them to walk through it with a sense of wholeness and grace and dignity that otherwise they would not have. Jesus, when he's in the garden, he's getting ready to be crucified. You know what, you know what he's, he's experiencing? He's experiencing a measure of anxiety, might I add. He does not want to do what he's getting ready to do. He even prays, God, would you take this cup from me? The Bible says that sweat would drip from his forehead and it was like blood. And when I say that he experienced anxiety, I don't mean that he was distrusting his heavenly father or that he wasn't in faith. But there's a measure of, I really don't want to do this. There's angst, maybe a better way to say, there's angst inside of him. And you know what he asks his friends to do? He asks them to pray with him to help carry this burden in this moment. Matthew 26, 36 through 38. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful, and he was troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Keep watch with me. In other words, would you pray with me? Would you be on guard with me? I'm going through it right now, friend. Would you go through it with me? And so they fell asleep, <laughs> if you know the story. They didn't really <laughs> uphold their end of the, the, the friendship bargain here. Jesus was getting frustrated because he kept coming back, and they're out cold snoring. I'm saying this to you, church, because I realize that this is incredibly simple. I realize that it, it, this is kind of like a duh moment. That true friendships, covenant friendships, role models in your life, like we understand it in theory, but the difference between what we know in our brains and what we experience in our heart and in practice are miles apart. Which is why one of the most common conversations that I have with people are these simple little words. I'm lonely. I'm afraid and I'm lonely. I'm anxious and I'm lonely. I don't have anyone to talk to about this. No one understands what I'm going through. And somewhere in the mix of technology and work and purpose and the pressures of just Western world, and Western civilization, we've lost what it looks like to just slow down and to stop and to enjoy friendship the way that the scriptures teach us to enjoy friendship. The Bible says that there is a friend that will stick closer than a brother. 
speaking even prophetically about Jesus. But understand that you can have the kind of friendship. There's, there's, there's David and Jonathan in the Bible. What kind of friendship did they have? I mean, Jonathan's father is trying to kill King David. He's not a king yet, but he's this young man. And yet Jonathan and David refuse to quit on their friendship. And it was the source of so much strength for David. And when they parted ways, the Bible says that they wept. What kind of a friend do you have that if they were leaving, you would weep over? For some of you, you don't have any friendship like that anymore. And this is something that we have to begin to work towards to remedy. And as we do, as we begin to turn the cultural tide of what it looks like to have true abiding relationships with other people, you know what I believe will actually begin to decrease? Some of all the ailments that that we're struggling with and dealing with because so many of them plague us in the midst of us being alone. It's not a magic bullet. I'm not offering it as such. But we have to be the kind of people who will hit stop and who will go and invest in each other and invest in God's presence that we might walk out a whole life with one another. I realize that the very thing that I'm talking about, friendship, is also the very thing that in many ways we don't know how to do. Like, thank you, Andy, for giving me the value of friendship. I understand it in theory, but I don't know how to make friends anymore. Just bear with me. When you graduate college, by the way, when you get out of the world of college, making friends becomes very difficult. It's like dating someone again. Only you're not dating anyone for romance. You're dating them as a friend. Like, do I, do I kind of like you? Maybe. Should we swap numbers? Let me think about it. You know, are we at a coffee stage yet? Okay, let's go. Okay. Like, you, you kind of have levels of friendship. And we don't know how to do it very tactfully and gracefully anymore, so oftentimes we just look at our phones. We live our lives with every free second with our eyes on our phone. You're in a public place, you just look at your phone because, I mean, heaven forbid you interact with another human. That's too awkward. When you're a child... Friendship looks like this. Do you, do you like dinosaurs? Cool. Let's run around and pretend we're dinosaurs. Awesome. Meet my new friend. And that's what friendship looks like. You think I'm joking. I'm not. But the world, as you get older, you become, you become cynical. Do you not? We become resentful. We, we understand what it looks like to feel rejected, to not feel accepted and experience pain. And the thought of opening our lives up to one another in a meaningful way to truly get to know someone, to let them see who you really are, oftentimes it is the epitome of anxiety-inducing, of fear, all these things. And so you're going to laugh maybe when I say this, but 
if you sign up for the church newsletter and, and you've got a communication card in your chair, you can take it to guest services on your way out. But I'm literally going to be writing tips in 2018 for people who are not college students, or you can use them if you are, to literally engage in friendships and learning how to make new friends. There are churches now that offer literal classes on just this thing because we've become so, it's become such a foreign concept for us to engage in relationship with one another. So we're going to begin to do something about that, but what we're going to do right now is we're going to have just a moment of worship because while we're talking about friendship with each other, the, the, most, the ultimate friendship that we have to engage in first is one with Jesus Christ. It's when you would open up your soul and your heart and truly be transparent with the greatest friend that you can ever know. And that's right here, right now, in a time of worship. As the band begins to strike up, that you would bear your soul open to Him, that you would worship Him, that you would give your anxieties to Him, that you would cast your cares and your burdens upon Him. We're going to walk with each other in this, and we're going to learn how to recapture the art of, of discipleship and mentorship and having true, deep, transparent friendships. But where it begins, church, is right here in your friendship with God Almighty that you would be honest with Him, that you would give Him everything this morning. Stand to your feet. Here's what I want to invite us to do. We're going to pray, we're going to worship, and then at the end of our time of worship, church, if you need prayer for any reason, our life group leaders are going to be standing uh, by up front here. If they didn't know, they do now. Right here, our ministry team leaders, or if you feel good about praying for somebody, pray for somebody as they come down front and they if you need God to heal you, if you're asking for Him to set you free, if there's a particular issue that's still weighing on your heart, bring it to Him. Let's pray for one another. Let's go.